Climate Change Quotidien, Mark Anthony here, and today we take a look at the latest climate summit and discuss what happened in Paris last month, coverage from our global leaders, and thoughts for the upcoming U.S. election. Alright, so think back to last month. The world was getting really excited as they geared up for going to Paris for the climate summit talks. Specifically, this was for COP21, which is a conference of the parties. This has happened 20 times before this meeting, all around the world in Peru, Warsaw, Poland, Qatar, Doha, and the venues really do keep going. The goal? Synthesize information from all of the parties that were coming to this to try and understand how their action plans will reduce greenhouse gas emissions moving forward. This goes all the way back to 1992. Actually in Rio de Janeiro, it was early June, and it was Earth Summit, which was formerly known by the UN as the Conference of the Environment and Development. All of the countries came together in Rio de Janeiro, stood up, and for the first time asked. Okay, so maybe not quite halfway, but countries did come together, and they did agree on a lot of important things. Mostly, Agenda 21. And what this was, was an acceptance of the UN's framework on climate change. Effectively, this created the first global union on climate action. And there's been good things that have come out of this. In 1993, the Kyoto Protocol was adopted. In 1995, the Montreal Action Plan was adopted. And then after that, uh, yeah, well, actually, nothing's happened after that. And here's our problem. Movement here is happening too slowly and far too incrementally, and it's not keeping up with the rate of change. And all of the countries involved know this. They see that CO2 in the atmosphere is at 400 parts per million, and they know that that's 100 parts per million greater than it was in the 1950s. There's a lot of urgency here. And each one of these cops is supposed to actually build on each other. So as we move higher and higher up the chain, there's a lot of momentum that's getting stoked. And this is exactly what was happening for COP21. In fact, the meeting that happened before that in Lima, COP20, it was a complete planning mission for what would happen in Paris. And everyone was really proud, actually. There was a lot of relief coming out of Lima. Everyone put their hands up and was like, You better work. To reduce your country's greenhouse gases. No, but seriously, COP21 was going to be different from all the other ones. And that's because each country did have homework. And this wasn't cheat off your neighbor homework. In fact, if you could cheat off your neighbor, you probably wouldn't have been assigned homework in the first place. No, this happened because countries couldn't agree with one another. Like I said, there's been some stagnancy since 1995. Countries needed to find common ground. This common ground was two degrees. The temperature increase we're trying to stay below, two degrees Celsius. In short, this is because it's the best we can hope for. The planet has already warmed by one degree Celsius, and will continue to warm because the buildup of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere has prevented heat from escaping, and this heat has been absorbed by the oceans. So regardless of whether we totally curb greenhouse gas emissions, say even by tomorrow, we would see temperatures continue to climb as heat escape from the oceans. So each country's plan was called an INDC, or an Intended Nationally Determined Contribution. This is basically climate change a la carte. Choose your own adventure for a climate change plan. Remember, these meetings are incremental though. So when each country was making their INDC, they knew about the global two degree goal. They also knew that their INDC was going to be evaluated for whether it would or whether it wouldn't hit this benchmark. So, what happens when you let climate change action become a free-for-all? Well, you can certainly see why countries couldn't agree. INDCs exhibited such a range, from business as usual to carbon neutrality. 60% of the INDCs said they would at least reduce emissions relative to business as usual, including Turkey, South Korea, South Africa, Russia, Japan, Canada, Australia, Argentina, among others. 30% had an absolute emission target, 
including carbon neutrality by 2085 in Costa Rica, or in the case of Bhutan, which is already carbon neutral, a pledge to maintain that standard. This also included middle-of-the-pack pledges, like Brazil, which says they'll reduce emissions in 2025 by 37% relative to 2005 levels. While each country identified their own emissions goal, they also had to describe how they would get there. For example, the US said they'd reduce emissions by 28% in 2025 relative to 2005 levels by restricting carbon pollution from power plants, by making new fuel economy standards for heavy-duty vehicles, reducing methane emissions from landfills in the oil and gas sector, and the use of hydrofluorocarbons, as well as improving energy conservation standards for buildings and equipment. The US's INDC was evaluated as medium by Climate Action Tracker because it isn't consistent with the two-degree warming increase unless a lot of other countries dramatically improve their plans, and this is because the USA's INDC was missing important action. I asked you a question, you know the answer, would you please answer it? If you sweep the floor in a solar panel facility, are, is that a green job? Yes. Thank you. Uh, if you drive a hybrid bus, public transportation, is that a green job? According to our definition, yes. Thank you. Uh, what if you're a college professor teaching classes about environmental studies? Yes. What about just any school bus driver? Yes. Uh, what about the guy who puts gas in the school bus? Yes. Uh, how about employees at a bicycle shop? Um, I guess I'm not sure about that. The answer is yes, according to your definition, and you've got a, a lot of them. Uh, what about a clerk at the bicycle repair shop? Yes. What about someone who works at an antique dealer? I'm not sure about that either. The answer is yes. Those are, those are recycled goods. They're antiques. They're used. What about someone who works at the Salvation Army in their clothing, recycling, and, and furniture? Right, because they're selling recycled goods. Okay. Recycled goods. What about somebody who opened a store to sell rare manuscripts? What industry is that? People sell rare books and manuscripts, but they're rare because they're old, so they're used. Okay. Uh, what about workers at a consignment shop? That's a green job. Does the teenage kid who works full-time at a used record shop count? Yes. How about someone who manufactures railroad rolling stock, basically train cars? I don't think we classified the manufacturer of rail cars. 48.8 percent of jobs in manufacturing rail cars counted, according to your statistics about half of the jobs that are being used to build trains. Okay, how about, well, just one more here, what about people who work in a trash disposal yard? Do garbage men have green jobs? Yes. Okay, I, I apologize. The real last, last is, mm -hmm. how about an oil lobbyist? Wouldn't an oil lobbyist count as having a green job if they are engaged in advocacy related to environmental issues. Yes. Thank you. You just heard the 2012 House Oversight Committee Chairman Darrell Issa clarifying the U.S. Labor Department's definition of a green job. An oil lobbyist having a green job. I wonder how much money they get for that one in subsidies. Which brings us to the first and potentially the most important COP21 goal, end fossil fuel subsidies. If 20 major countries abandon their subsidies, global CO2 emissions in those countries would decline by 11% by 2020. In 2013, global fossil fuel subsidies were $500 billion for consumers and another $100 billion for upstream producers. 
If we go to the USA, they alone invested $20.5 billion on direct fossil fuel subsidies for coal, oil, and natural gas. Russia did 22.8, and the UK and China both did around $20 billion. Fossil fuel subsidies are also far greater than global renewable energy subsidies, which were $101 billion in total. In the USA alone again, if we look at solar, this accounts for 0.1% of our budget. Yes, 0.1. This means that renewables receive five times less money from the government than oil companies. This is scary. If you look at the National Science Foundation's budget, which is the primary agent for scientific research in the USA, in 2012 their budget was $7 billion, and since then it hasn't changed much. If we took the money that we allocated to fossil fuel subsidy and gave that to the NSF, our scientific output would be three times higher. The second was a carbon tax. Currently about 40 countries and more than 20 cities and states have implemented some form of carbon pricing system, according to a 2014 report from the World Bank. This report also shows that South Africa and Chile currently hold a carbon tax that almost every country in Europe is either using or is scheduled an emissions trading system or carbon tax, which is in the case of China, Brazil, Mexico, British Columbia, Turkey, even Kazakhstan. Is the USA on this list? No. There are states in the USA that have proposed a carbon pricing system, including California and small states in the northeastern USA, but as the contributor of 16% of the total emissions, we need to do things that are more consistent with the rest of the global community. The third, political consensus on climate change. There is a reality here, and a recent IPCC report has never been clearer. Here it says, warming of the climate system is unequivocal, and since the 1950s, Many of the observed changes are unprecedented over decades to millennia. The atmosphere and ocean have warmed, the amount of snow and ice has diminished, and sea level has risen. Each of the last three decades has been successively warmer at the Earth's surface than any preceding decade since the 1850s. The period from 1983 to 2012 was very likely the warmest 30-year period of time in the last 1800 years in the Northern Hemisphere, where such an assessment is possible, and likely the warmest 30-year period over the last 1400 years. From 1901 to 2010, global mean sea level has risen by 0.19 meters. The rate of sea level rise since the mid-19th century has been larger than the mean rate during the previous two millennia. Consensus is tough though, and in a country like the USA, or not Denmark, which is paving the way for climate change action, their politicians agree, and that's why 40% of their energy comes from renewables. Which brings us to the fourth point. Invest in renewable energy and technology. Currently, only 14% of the energy worldwide comes from renewables. In the USA, we get the same amount of energy from solar panels as we do from burning human waste that we strain out of municipal sewers. Yes, we strain poop out of sewers. There's so much room for improvement here, it's staggering. For those of you who say that solar is unrealistic, maybe because panels are too expensive, or because certain areas don't get enough sunlight or batteries aren't good enough yet, this simply is not true. As the size and generating capacity of a solar system is a function of the number of solar panels installed, applications of solar technology are easily scalable and versatile, and can go onto the current electricity grid. Yes, it is true, batteries are expensive, but their costs are going down, and leading battery producers like Tesla have suggested that within 20 years, we will have batteries that are large enough and cheap enough to last 20 years and cost just $6,000. Right now, for an American home, the average American home uses 32 kilowatts of energy per day. That demand for energy 
could be met by running a 5 kilowatt solar system for 6 hours a day. Because solar costs are going down so quickly, a 5 kilowatt system with a 20 year life expectancy can cost less than $8,000 after subsidies. Now just imagine how cheap that would be if solar subsidy programs were comparable to fossil fuel subsidy. Oh yeah, and it's important to remember, that $8,000 is for 20 years of energy, the lifespan of a solar panel. Compare that to the $26,000 it costs for 20 years of electricity currently in the USA. So even if you pay $6,000 for a battery, that's still $8,000 savings to your electricity bill, and you virtually have no carbon footprint. So to wrap that up, COP21 stressed four things. Movement away from subsidy for fossil fuels. Adding a carbon pricing system or a carbon tax and trading system. Focus on political consensus and invest in renewable energy technology. So there were those four points, and honestly to varying degrees, some countries met this. And some are leading the way. Sweden, for example, in association with Denmark, Norway, New Zealand, Switzerland, and the UK, advocate for phasing out subsidies for fossil fuel energy, and they've created the Friends of Fossil Fuel Subsidy Reform Group. There are other countries who aren't considering this, including the USA. In fact, the USA performed pretty weakly at COP21. Not only did our INDC fail to propose any legislative change to reach our goal, that was a 28% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2025 relative to 2005, but it wasn't even compliant with the goal. To keep mean annual temperature from climbing 2 degrees Celsius, our plan wouldn't have that happen. That was the entire point of the meeting. The thing about this though is that you'd never know that. Tell me what you think. Here's Obama delivering his address to the US people following COP21. Good evening. In my first inaugural address, I committed this country to the tireless task of combating climate change and protecting this planet for future generations. Two weeks ago in Paris, I said before the world that we needed a strong global agreement to accomplish this goal, an enduring agreement that reduces global carbon pollution and sets the world on a course to a low carbon future. A few hours ago, we succeeded. We came together around the strong agreement the world needed. We met the moment. I want to commend President Hollande and Secretary General Baum for their leadership and for hosting such a successful summit, and French Foreign Minister Laurent Fabius for presiding with patience and resolve. And I want to give a special thanks to Secretary John Kerry my senior advisor, Brian Deese, our chief negotiator, Todd Stern, and everyone on their teams for their outstanding work and for making America proud. I also want to thank the people of nearly 200 nations, large and small, developed and developing, for working together to confront a threat to the people of all nations. Together we've shown what's possible when the world stands as one. Today, the American people can be proud because this historic agreement is a tribute to American leadership. Over the past seven years, we've transformed the United States into the global leader in fighting climate change. America is a global leader fighting climate change? Well, that's up for debate in the political arena, but the reality is that numbers talk. So after all is said and done, what were the impacts of the collective action of the INDCs on emission estimates? Well. 
global emissions projected for 2025 and 2030 will be higher than any previous year. Relative to 1990 to 2010, emissions including the INDC mitigation strategies are estimated to be 34 to 46 percent higher in 2025 and 37 to 52 percent higher in 2030. The reality is that the INDC plans aren't enough to reduce greenhouse gas emissions relative to the 2 degrees Celsius goal, not in 2025 and not in 2030. There is some good news to this though, which is that the growth of emissions from 2010 to 2030 will be at least 10 to 50% lower than 1990 to 2010, but more than anything coming out of COP21, we realize we haven't done enough. We haven't planned enough, and our climate action plans need more action. For me, this was a tough discovery, especially because the Paris Agreement will be ratified and it will replace the Kyoto Protocol. Although there will be some accountability for countries to stick to what their INDC publicly announced, it doesn't really matter if the plan isn't robust enough. The only movement that could get us there goes back to fossil fuel subsidies, carbon pricing, political consensus, and green technologies, just as the COP21 community agreed upon. Who are the major players that need to do more? The USA, China, Russia, and the UK. Who has proposed to do the least? The USA. One way the USA can do more on climate change is through our elected officials. As the USA moves into the primary season, we're beginning to feel the excitement, or maybe the fear, around a new Democrat or Republican in office. Strong leadership that prioritizes climate change action might be able to have a significant influence on fossil fuel subsidies, our carbon pricing systems, the political consensus in Congress even around climate change, and how we invest in renewable energies. If we look at the different candidates, we see that there are pretty complex opinions on climate change, spanning whether it's real or fake, not that complex, if you compare the top Republicans to the top Democratic candidates, to very specific climate action when you compare the two top Democratic candidates. This is sad for me to say, but because there's almost no substance in what the top two Republicans have to say about climate change, we're going to start there. On top, you've got Donald Trump. He's leading the polls with 35% of the vote, followed by Ted Cruz with 19% of the vote. Here's what Donald Trump had to say about climate change on a recent interview with Hugh Hewitt. Do you believe that the temperature of the earth is increasing? And what would you do if you do believe that vis-a-vis global uh, climate change? Well, first of all, I'm not a believer in global warming. I'm not a believer in man-made global warming. It could be warming and it's going to start to cool at some point. And, you know, in the early, in the 1920s, people talked about global cooling. I don't know if you know that or not. They thought the earth was cooling. Now it's global warming. And actually, we've had times where the weather wasn't working out, so they change it to extreme weather, and they have all different names, you know, so that it fits the bill. But the problem we have, if you look at, you know, our energy costs and all of the things that we're doing to solve a problem that I don't think in any major fashion exists. I mean, Obama thinks it's the number one problem of the world today, and I think it's 
very low on the list. So I am not a believer, and I will, unless somebody can prove something to me, I believe there's weather, I believe there's change, and I believe it goes up and it goes down and it goes up again, and it changes depending on years and centuries, but I am not a believer. Okay, so a lot of stuff there. Mostly not true, all manipulative. I'm going to debunk this and the idea of cooling in the 1920s. What Trump was referring to, whether he knew it or not, was the growing ice sheet in Antarctica. The observation that ice was growing in Antarctica led people to think that the region was cooling in the 20s to the 70s, although scientists themselves didn't have data to support this claim and weren't proposing it themselves. Sounds like today. In reality, the Antarctic Peninsula has a much better understood weather season now than in the 20s. It's actually the fastest changing region on Earth, with warming four times the rate since the 1950s. So let me explain. In addition to climate change, human release of chlorofluorocarbons into the atmosphere has markedly degraded stratospheric ozone. The stratospheric ozone, ozone itself, is actually a greenhouse gas, and the loss of this ozone in particular has created a huge hole over Antarctica that's created a lot of intense storm prevalence. These storms are driving cold air off of the land and increasing ice sheet melt, especially on Pine Island Glacier. Ice loss here is so substantial that it's 3 millimeters per year, roughly 10% of the total ice melt. As ice sheets melt, this is interfering with the way that the different ocean layers mix, and specifically, how water that's lower in the ocean, which is much warmer and saltier, is able to come up and mix with surface water, which, melting from the glaciers, is fresh water, not salty, and much colder. The cold air coming off of the land from the storms is therefore meeting this non-salty water on the top of the ocean, and this is creating sea ice. So no, there's no Grandois warming here. There is ice growth, but we actually now know that this ice growth season is shrinking. Ice growth is seasonal, and the season for growth is shrinking a lot, with about three months less of the ice season. So yeah, while it may seem counterintuitive to have ice growth with warmer temperatures, this isn't caused by cooling, and the net effect is raising sea levels, not lowering them. So now that we've got that out of the way, we see Trump refer to weather and climate as though they aren't very different. This is a top strategy for climate change deniers, and in particular, there's one stat being thrown around to confuse us all. We can see this with Ted Cruz during a Judiciary Subcommittee meeting he had in October. Here, Cruz interrogates the Sierra Club president, Aaron Mayer. Thank you, Senator Coons, and I'd like to, to go back briefly to Mr. Mayor. In your written testimony, uh, you said that the science behind climate change and its effect on minority communities, quote, should not be up for debate. Uh, I'm curious, is, is the Sierra Club, is, is this a frequent practice to declare areas of science not up for debate, not up for consideration of what the evidence and data show? If you're right. If you are relying on the evidence and data, you know, the science, the preponderance of the evidence are there. But, 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 but that's a different thing than saying we should not debate a question, that the Sierra Club has, has declared this scientific issue resolved, and there should be no debate. Based upon the preponderance of the evidence, the science is settled, but the thing is, is that anything is up for de debate, Senator. We can debate anything. Well, you know, I would note that the, even the phrase preponderance of the ev evidence, having been a practicing lawyer for many years, means 51 percent. That means 40, not, at least 51 percent is what the preponderance means. Uh, you know, I would ask, for example, if you want to end debate, you don't want to address the facts, 
Uh, how do you address the fact that in the last 18 years, the satellite data show no demonstrable warming whatsoever? Sir, I would rely upon the Union of Concerned Scientists, and I would rely upon the evidence, and again, from our own NOAA officials, uh, the data are there. Uh, is it correct that the satellite data over the last 18 years demonstrate no significant warming? No. How is it incorrect? All right, this one's an important one to break down. What Cruz said here is true, but it's one of the most misleading things that climate skeptics can say to try and validate their argument, and it's flawed. In 1998, an exceptionally warm year occurred because of a really prolific El Nino event, making this year an outlier from all temperature trends. No climate scientist would ever discuss a weather trend within a 15 to 20 year time frame either. So because this period of time is too short to understand climate phenomena, this doesn't make sense. So here what Cruz and many others have done is to set a start point at 1998 and to look at the last 18 years. Because yeah, within this range it's true, there has been no significant increase in mean annual temperature. But if you move forward a year, or if you move back a year, this is no longer the case. So you see a significant trend. There is a reason that climate scientists avoid outliers in data sets and include realistic time frames to discuss climate. But hey, when you're losing the battle, I guess you play dirty. I'm not going to compare the Republican candidates anymore because these two represent the people who will most likely make it to the primary, and they pretty much share the same opinion. Where we do see the big difference here is within the Democrats. This isn't to say that there aren't any Republican candidates who offer a good perspective on climate change. Notably, John Kasich does but unfortunately his polling shows less than 3% of the vote, and it's entirely unrealistic to think that he'll be the Republican candidate. So now we're going to go into it with the Democrats. There are effectively two candidates, Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. Both openly support action for climate change, but they have different ideas on how to get there. Here's a summary of what Hillary Clinton's plan says. This comes directly from her website and her climate change fact sheet. Clinton proposes to expand the amount of solar capacity by 700% by the end of 2020 and add more power generation to the grid than has ever been done before. One way this will be done is through the Solar X Prize, which will award communities that initiate solar panel installations and rural leadership around programs that provide renewable energy. Clinton has also laid out government support for renewable energy, including a tax incentive that may be larger than currently offered for renewable energy. She has also included an increased investment in clean energy research and design, including nuclear and carbon capture and sequestration technologies. Clinton also says she will reduce the amount of oil consumed in the USA and respect that some areas are too sensitive for us to be using for energy production. So what about Bernie Sanders? Again, here's a summary of his plans, and this comes from his website. It's his full plan. Sanders proposes to cut greenhouse gas emissions by 40% come 2030 and by 80% come 2050. He proposes to put a carbon pollution tax into place and to remove subsidies for fossil fuels and place those subsidies into renewable energy. Bernie says he will create a nuclear-free clean energy system for electricity, heating, and transportation. Bernie also says that he will ban fossil fuel lobbyists from working in the White House. He will fight to turn over Citizens United, which allows fossil fuel companies to pour unlimited money into the political system. Specifically, he'll make programs that recognize heightened public health risks for low-income and minority communities, particularly in places like New Orleans. Honestly, Bernie's plan is very detailed, and it's a lot larger than Clinton's plan. It's almost impossible to compare the two candidates on this issue when you dive into their action plans, because Bernie has proposed so many specific things that Hillary Clinton's plan hasn't touched. 
Specifically, COP21 identified that removing subsidies from fossil fuel industries would be the biggest step towards reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. There's only one plan that has this. It's Bernie Sanders. So that wraps up our show for today. Thanks for tuning in. A copy of the show transcript is available online, and if you liked what you heard, drop us a comment. Check us out next time on the Climate Change Quotidien. Music for today's show included Nile by Kisses, I Can Change by LCD Sound System, I See Fire by Ed Sheeran, and Moth to a Flame brings us out today by Chairlift. How can I turn away?